God of grace, we thank you that you, though holy, though infinite and majestic in all of your glory, in all of your perfections, of such holiness that angels fly around you as we have that vision in Isaiah chapter 6 and seeing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty hiding their face and hiding their feet. And such is the holiness that would destroy us, that would consume us, were it not for your dear Son who stood in our place according to your eternal plan before the foundation of the world we read this morning. That you, Christ, the eternal Son of God, uniting yourself to humanity in the mystery of the Incarnation, would do so so that you could go to the cross and stand in our place and absorb the wrath of God that we rightly have provoked and we deserve as our substitute, as our mediator, as our sacrifice. And then buried in the grave and rose three days later, affirming the atonement, guaranteeing every promise of God to us and giving us an everlasting hope that we remember this morning, not only by our gathering, not only by our listening to your word, but also in this table that you have ordained for your church to take together to remember the gospel, to remember the promises, to know the present reality of your grace to us and to await your return. Pray that you would prepare our hearts this morning and teach us as we look at this section in Matthew 27 that you would affirm to us the wonder and the profundity of the reality of your death and therefore the certainty of your resurrection. And any here who may not know you, may this be the day that they receive from you life, the gift of faith and repentance. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, we'll be looking this morning at verses 55 through 56. So Matthew 27, verses 55 through 56, as we're coming now to the end of this chapter and the final record of Matthew in his gospel of the death of Jesus and here, the burial of Jesus Christ, the last events before the glorious accounting of his resurrection, his being raised from the dead. Tremendous, tremendous portion of Scripture, as every part of Scripture is, but particularly so this morning in Matthew 27. Let me introduce it in this way, by reminding us that death is a consequence for sin. He told Adam, when he gave him instructions about the tree, you'll remember in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die, right? You're going to die. And in fact, Adam did eat, as did Eve, and in fact, death began on that very day. And so that's recorded for us in the opening chapters of Scripture. We have the first death recorded, physical death, Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain, we have an example, another example also of spiritual death and Lamech in his rebellion to God as he speaks to his two wives. We have a record of the death of all men in Genesis chapter 5 is that repeated refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And such is the experience of all men because of the reality of sin. So death is a reality that we all face. It's 
a reality for both the righteous and for the unrighteous. We cannot escape it. And in one sense, it's one of the clearest testimonies of our creatureliness. In other words, God alone from whom all life comes, who is in himself life itself, cannot die, but creatures do die, and such we are. And we do so, again, because of the reality of sin. Because the reality of sin. It is a daily reminder of the condition of the sinfulness of man. And therefore, it was necessary then that if God were to save, that our substitute must die. He must die. He must really and truly experience death. For that is a consequence of sin. Hebrews 2.14, I won't read it, reminds us of this, that because the children partook of flesh and blood, also then our Savior Christ had to partake of flesh and blood like his brethren in order that he may defeat death. And in that context, also the power of Satan in death. So in other words, death is something that... Christ had to experience. He had to experience in order for him to be an atonement for our sin. He must die. In order for that atonement to bear all of the results and the consequences that God intended for it to bear, he must not also not only die, but he must also rise from the dead. And those two things have to be held together. If there is no real death, then there is no real resurrection, right? So in order for the resurrection to be as glorious as it is, in order for his atoning death to be all that God intended it to be, he had to die and he had to rise. And these are the realities, the great two realities that confront us here at the end of the accounting of the life of Christ in all of the Gospels, but particularly for us in Matthew. And what Matthew is emphasizing for us this morning then is the reality of Christ's death. The reality that he suffered the consequences for sin in our place and the reality of what he's soon going to introduce us to of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through which all of the promises of God we read last week are yes and amen in him. So one author said that the infinite wisdom of God foresaw the objections of unbelievers and infidels and provided against them here in the testimony of Matthew. Knowing the importance of the real physical death of Jesus Christ and knowing the doubts that would assail this reality by the great deceiver Satan and his servants, God gave un waveable, unwavering and certain testimony to the death of his son. And that's really what all of these verses here in Matthew 27 are all focused on, providing a definite and certain witness to the death of Jesus Christ. And there's really irony throughout all of this, as we've seen many times again, because really what else is over arching all of this account is the absolute sovereignty and the providence of God. Through every event, or here at the end particularly, uh, the event, the actions of the Jews and the actions of the Pilate and the Roman soldiers are all intended, in fact, to deny the very thing that their actions are affirming, and that is the real death of Christ and therefore the reality of his resurrection. 
So in all of these events, what men meant for evil, God was using for good by his providence. And so what we'll see then is that we can have confidence in Christ's atonement. We can have confidence in our future resurrection when we truly grasp the reality of Christ's death. And so we'll see the witness of that between friends and foes. But first, read the passage with me, and then we'll look at it a bit more closely. Beginning in verse 55. Now many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation... The chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. We'll go back up to verses 55 and 56. And let's see the witness of friends. And here first, the witness of the women. Now this portion, and it may be divided up in your Bible, is usually attached with the section previous to it. But it it fits here just as well. You could do it either way. But we're going to look at it here separately because it fits Matthew's intention here of witnesses to the death of Jesus Christ. And this is really quite significant on many levels. One is remember that these women who Matthew is giving their names here were still alive during the early church, and possibly even at least some of them still alive at the writing of Matthew's gospel, which could have taken place anywhere from the early 50s A.D. into the early 60s A.D. In either case, they were alive at the preaching of the gospel. They were alive in the early church, beginning in Acts, when all of these events were proclaimed. Their testimony stood. They were eyewitnesses to all of these things. And that is extremely, extremely important. And it's a significant witness to the trustworthiness of Scripture. In other words, all of these events are verifiable. These things weren't written down centuries later when all of these people were dead. They were written down during the lifetimes of those who were witnesses to these events. There were masses of people who were alive when these events were being preached. As Paul said to to a Roman leader, these things were not done in a corner. They weren't done secret. And so these women being here and a witness to all of these events are highly significant. Now, while there were many women, he mentions, present, Matthew singles out three for special mention, and let's just consider who they are briefly. 
There was, he says in verse 56, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, a name we're familiar with in Luke chapter 8. She is mentioned as the one out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. And so she was a great sinner and one who had these demons largely controlling her. And yet Jesus freed her, he released her, and he cast them out. And she became then a disciple of his She's interesting, actually, because Mary Magdalene is also the first one to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She was the one there at the tomb whom Jesus first spoke to after rising from the dead. And she is actually the one that was charged with bringing the message of the resurrection to Jesus' disciples in John chapter 20. Then he mentions Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. He's further identified in Mark 15:40 as the mother of James the Younger or James the Less and Joseph. And very possibly, this is the same Mary mentioned in John 19:25, described as Mary, the wife of Clopas. And possibly is Jesus' aunt. It's possibly the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary, as is indicated in John chapter 19. And although it's exact, difficult to be sure of exact number and identity of all those mentioned in John, this is a general consensus that she is the wife of Clopas and the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, because James and Joseph are given as two, the names of two sons of Mary, Jesus' mother and his half-brothers and sisters mentioned in Matthew 13, 55, some say this is Jesus' mother that's actually being referred to here, but uh, that's not as likely. It would be an odd way to refer to her. However, Jesus' mother was also present, as she's mentioned in John, there at the cross of Jesus. If you'll remember, Jesus committed the care of his mother to his disciple, John, who was also there. But Matthew mentions one other. He says, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and then finally, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. We'll remember her, most likely in Matthew, because of her uh, more ignoble moment when she sent her sons or went for her sons to ask special favor for them, if you'll remember, to sit on the right hand or the left hand of Jesus in the coming of his kingdom, asking for preferment of her sons. So while that was not a shining moment of faith for her, this is. Here she is at the end of Jesus' life, one of the few of his followers that were still with him and is a witness to all of these events. Now, the fact that Matthew mentions these women here at the end is significant on at least two fronts. And let me just briefly point those out to you. First of all, and this fact is rather obvious, but we don't want to skip over it, they're all women. They're all women. Note, except for John, who's mentioned in John 19, to whom, again, Jesus committed the care of his mother, these are all women. The men have all abandoned him. The disciples have all fled. It's the women who stayed near him. The women who showed the greatest courage and devotion to him. It's the women who were the witnesses to his resurrection. It was a woman who was committed to the charge of telling the disciples about the resurrection of Jesus. It was the women who had faithfully ministered to him here all the way from Galilee and other times who were here with him at the end of his life. And I just want to make one mention here, connection. In 1 Timothy 2.15, the Apostle Paul says this. 
he says that the reputation of women, essentially the dignity of women, is restored by bearing children and thereby raising a faithful generation. He says their dignity is restored. However, it's fair to say as well that the honor and the reputation of women is redeemed here from that same stigma there in 1 Timothy 2, the stigma of having led the race into sin by giving the fruit to her husband Adam. But here their dignity and honor is restored just as well by their being present witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is particularly significant within that culture where women were not held, and particularly to the Jews, in the highest standard. They had a lower status. And yet here, by God's own providential working, they are given great status, great dignity, and great honor. Second reason that this is important is that these were well-known and prominent women within the early church. They were with Christ throughout his ministry. Again, they were eyewitnesses of all the events uh, of his ministry, of those things leading up to his crucifixion, of his crucifixion, and then ultimately of his resurrection. And so their witness carries weight. As a matter of fact, he'll mention too in verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting opposite of the grave. They were with him to the very end. They are examples of devotion and faith. And they are functioning here as witnesses to the real death of Jesus Christ. From that then, Matthew gives us another one in verse 57. He says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So Matthew moves from the witness of the women here to the witness of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. But before we get there, I want to go to one other passage because to set the context. And that's in John chapter 19. As you've noticed as we've gone through here, John particularly fills out a lot of the details and background and context that are not included in Matthew and some of the other synoptics. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's just look very briefly, though, at John chapter 19. Because these are the events that happened before Joseph of Arimathea that... Matthew takes us right into. In verse 31, after Jesus had bowed his head in verse 30 and given up his spirit, after he had said, it is finished, so the work of the atonement having been completed, being done, John records to us that then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So in other words, they're concerned that Jesus not remain on the cross. And again, as we've seen throughout, this is on the face of it, an amazing example of their continued hypocrisy and spiritual blindness. In other words, they're, they're concerned to not offend any part of the ceremonial law that they might not be unclean for Passover and for the festival day and so on and so forth, are yet... Willingly and knowingly participating in deceptive actions and in sin. They knew that Jesus was an innocent man. They knew that they had manipulated their own system and the Roman government to accomplish their ungodly purposes. They knew that and yet they show this concern to be ceremonially clean. Not unlike, even though they knew it was bribe money back in Matthew 27, the early chapters, 
they couldn't put it into the treasury, and so they bought the potter's field. Or John 18, when they wouldn't enter into the praetorium because they didn't want to be defiled for the Passover, even though they were themselves guilty of murdering the Passover lamb. Nonetheless, here they are going to Pilate and asking that his body may be taken down. And specifically, he says here, that their legs may be broken. Now, their concern for not wanting Jesus' body to be on the cross harkens back to Deuteronomy 21. Let me read it to you, verses 22 and 23. It says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So in other words, to have those bodies hanging on the cross would have, for them, defiled the land and been unholy and unclean for such a day as the celebration of the Passover and the Sabbath. Now this was also important because the Roman practice was simply to leave them hanging on the cross. Uh, Crucifixion, death from crucifixion could take days sometimes, as much as seven days or more in some cases. And so the Romans would just leave them there, and eventually, even after they died, they would continue to let them remain on the cross until eventually birds of prey would come and pick off their flesh and until nothing was left, and then at some point they would take them down. However, the Jews, of course, again, wanted to avoid that, and so they asked that their legs might be broken. Why their legs be broken? What does that have to do with them dying? Well... As you may be familiar with, one of the common ways of death of a crucified victim was actually by suffocation. Uh, What would happen is is that they hung, all that pressure would go down their lungs. It became very difficult to breathe. And eventually when they had no more strength to prop themselves up, the victim would suffocate and therefore die by suffocation. If they wanted to hasten the death of the victim, then the Roman soldiers would go and with some kind of club would break the legs of the victim. Therefore, they would lose the ability to prop themselves up and to get a breath and then they would die uh, very quickly, very quickly uh, by suffocation. And so that's essentially what they're asking for here. Just as a point of interest, in 1968, an archaeologist found bones of a man that was crucified in the first century and makes this note. Uh, One leg had been fractured and the other had been shattered to pieces. They're an example of what the Roman soldiers did. And so they come here with those orders. In verse 32, the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. And so their death, the two criminals that were on either side of Jesus, were immediately put to death. And as you'll remember, the promise to one of those criminals was today... You'll be with me in paradise. But the certainty for the other one, unless something happened that Scripture doesn't record, is that he went immediately to judgment. But the point for us to notice here is that these other two criminals were alive, but verse 33, coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And here is yet even another unintended witness to the reality of Jesus' death. These are Roman soldiers, beloved. They were familiar with death. They knew what death looked like. They knew what it sounded like. They could tell it when they saw it. 
And here they came to Jesus and immediately recognized that he was no longer alive. And so they did not break his legs. And not only are they giving an unintended witness to the reality of his death, but they're also giving an unintended witness to the reality of Scripture. Look down at verse 36 if you're in John 19. For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Taken most likely from Psalm 34, 20. Also fulfilling the very ceremony of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, he says, speaking of the Passover lamb, nor are you to break any bone of it. It's repeated in Numbers 9, 12 as well. And this is an incredible testimony again to the eternal power and sovereignty and providence of God over all of these events. It's an incredible testimony to the eternal nature of God and His wisdom in providing, in this case, nearly 1,500 years before the event, a testimony to the reality of His Son as the true Passover Lamb. God is sovereign over all of history in every detail. And that is screaming from every part of these events that are recorded for us here. And so although the soldier's determination would be a testimony enough of Jesus' death, he affirms it even more. Verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And then John testifies in verse 34, 5, And he who has seen is testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. So that you also may believe. Spear was about three and a half feet long, shaft of wood with a sharp point at the end. It could be like an arrowhead or an iron point. It was thrust into the side of Jesus. So they had already acknowledged that he was dead, But just to affirm it even more, they commit this act. And of course, outflow blood and water. What do those mean? Well, we're not going to get into a long explanation here. But primarily, the point of mentioning the blood and the water is to affirm that Jesus had actually died. That's the whole context of John recounting it. That Jesus had actually died, that he was dead Beyond a shadow of a doubt. He was dead. There was no life in the corpse of Jesus that was hanging on the cross. Let me just give you one example. I have several here. Let me just give you one testimony of this. Uh, It says this. Had Jesus been alive, one author, when the spear pierced his side, strong spurts of blood would have emerged with every heartbeat... Instead, the observer noticed semi-solid red clots seeping out, distinct and separate from the accompanying watery serum. This is evidence of massive clotting in the blood in the main arteries and is exceptionally strong medical proof of death. And it is all the more impressive because the evangelist could not possibly have realized it's significant to a pathologist, end quote. So there's different explanations physically of why there was water mixed with blood. But the overall point and the primary point is this. Jesus was dead. He was dead. There was no life in the body. It was a lifeless body that was there on the cross. That is the testimony. Of course, John has a penchant 
and a pattern within his writing, and particularly his gospel, to attach symbolic meaning to these events. And so that's very likely what he does here. The blood possibly meaning for the reader to think also of the death of Christ as the sacrificial lamb, the water of the promise that he would receive the Spirit after his resurrection. But in either case, here John is testifying that he is dead. And then he records for us this. One is that that's another fulfillment of prophecy, not only the breaking of the legs, but also the piercing. Verse 37, they shall look on him whom he pierced, quoting there from Zechariah 12.10. But then he says in verse 38, after these things, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. He went to Pilate after these things and asked that he might have the body of Jesus. And it is here that Matthew picks up the account. Now the Gospels do not make it clear whether Joseph went to get the body as a volunteer in response to the Jews who wanted him down or whether he went of his own accord. Those are some details that aren't really that important. The point is, is that Joseph of Arimathea goes, takes the body down and acts as another witness to the death of Christ. There's not a lot known about Joseph of Arimathea, but there are two descriptions that Matthew gives us. One is that he was a rich man from a place called Arimathea. And two, that he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. Mark 15, 43 adds that he was a prominent member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And of course, John 19 tells us, as we just read, that he was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. And Luke 23, verse 50, reminds us that he is, or tells us that he was a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their plans. So this was a faithful Jew. He was one who's apparently been a follower of Jesus for some undefined amount of time, but here he shows up asking Pilate for the body of Jesus that he might give him a proper burial. He's a man who was risking his reputation. It was a man who was risking the scorn of his fellow council members. It was a man who was making a risk and counting the cost in order that he might perform this last act of devotion to the body of Jesus. Now, in fact, John tells us as well that Nicodemus was with him, who was also a prominent leader of the Jews in the council, and is also one who questioned the motives of the council back in John chapter 27 when they wanted to condemn Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is not called a disciple of Jesus, but the indication is, is that at some point, he who had come to him by night in John chapter 3 had experienced the life-giving work of the Spirit and had become a disciple of Jesus as well. And so here it's actually Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who are with Jesus in the last days. Again, he was a rich member of a prominent and a prominent member of society. He was a part of the ruling body. He was a good and a righteous man, but he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And therefore, Mark tells us that he had to gather up courage and go in before Pilate. Again, this is no small matter of what he's doing here. Think of the context. Jesus has just been killed because of the hatred of the crowds, because of the hatred of the leaders of the Jews. 
They had just seen what that hatred could do. And yet here he is and he risks bringing some of that same scorn even on himself as he goes in before Pilate. This really is an incredible step of faith and commitment. And it shows the reality of faith. Because he had come at some level to understand who Jesus was. There was more to learn, certainly more to come. But up to that point, he had come to believe in Christ. And he was willing to make a risky decision to go get the body as an act of devotion. It was a decision that would cost him. One has said this, His great love for Jesus led him to face the wrath of his fellow council members and friends, as well as the wrath of Pilate, in order to offer this last gesture of respect to Christ. And I would just want to make a note here for us as we move to the end, that love is the strongest bond. It's the strongest bond. A love of a parent for a child, a love of a husband for a wife, even the love of a friend for another causes the greatest acts of self-sacrifice, the greater, greatest acts of care and concern. And the heart of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is this, not external religious service, but it is to have a love for Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the essence of spiritual life is, it's this, to love Christ. That's the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And in a, in a subtle way here, Joseph of Arimathea, down at the end of Jesus' life, demonstrates that for us. Demonstrates that for us. To be a disciple of Christ is to have a deep and a profound and a reverent love for him. Not just an emotion, but a love that ultimately compels to obedience, compels to worship, compels to faithfulness, even in light of whatever it may cost. At the end of the day, why, if you know Christ, do you obey Him? Because you love Him. Because you've trusted Him. Because you want to honor Him. And so it is here with Joseph of Arimathea. So he goes in faith and he asks for the body of Christ. Mark records for us in Mark 15 that upon asking or upon receiving this request from Joseph of Arimathea... Pilate questions the centurion about the reality of his death. The centurion affirms. So just look at the mounting evidence here. The evidence of witness of the women. You have the witness of the Roman soldiers who were there, who saw him on the cross, who thrust the spear. You have the witness of the centurion. You have the witness of Joseph of Arimathea. You have the witness of Nicodemus. You have the witness of Pilate. All of these unwittingly doing one thing, confirming that Jesus, in fact, was dead. He was dead. And so they took him down, Pilate, and did possibly, or uh, excuse me, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, probably with some of the servants that were his. He was a wealthy man. The uh, Gospels don't record it for us, but they certainly would have washed the body as was custom, treated it with the spices and the myrrh that were brought by Nicodemus that are mentioned in John chapter 19. And then they wrapped it, Matthew records for us, in a clean linen cloth. Let me just make a note here. This is not the Shroud of Turin. In case anybody's confused about that. This is not the Shroud of Turin for multiple reasons. Not the least of which it's the wrong date. And Jesus had a separate headcloth that was laid aside. If you'll remember when they went into the tomb. They found it wrapped up and rolled in another place. So don't go looking there for edification. In either case, once finished, they took uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus... uh, 
took uh, them to Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He says in verse 60, he laid it, meaning the body of Jesus, in his own new tomb. And this is precisely what was anticipated by Isaiah 53, 9, that he was with a rich man in his death. So he's laid in the tomb and he's rolled a large stone, they did, against the entrance of the tomb and they went away. A large stone that would have been round, shaped like a wheel, fit into a little groove. Oftentimes it would have been set up on a little incline, so it would have been fairly easy to push down, but very difficult uh, to push back up. It would have taken several men to do so. It would have been very heavy. So here they're able to roll that stone into place. Now why all the detail? Why all of the detail? Well, of course, there's one part of it where God is demonstrating the reality of faith and the devotion of his friends who followed him to the end. But more importantly, again, he's giving witness after witness here to the reality of Christ's death. There's the witness of friends, and then he ends the chapter, and we'll do this very quickly, with the witness of foes, verses 62 to 66. Now Jesus is in the grave. The stone is rolled in front. He's dead. He's been prepared for burial. Really prepared in the way of a royalty. I mean, that number amount of spices and that kind of care was usually only for the very affluent and prominent. And so it was here with Jesus. But then he says in verse 62, Now on the next day, so Jesus has now been in the grave overnight. They did those things earlier. They would have had to stop around 6 p.m. in preparation for the Sabbath. So we don't have an exact time frame, but Jesus died around 3 p.m. They probably would have shortly after that gone into Pilate. They would have had to have enough time to get him in the grave before 6 p.m. So now he's been in the tomb. He's been in there overnight. And the Jews then come on the next day. He says the, day, the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. I am to rise again. Now, this is an important note here on a couple of points. That they came after the day after the preparation. So if you remember for the Sabbath there was no work. So they had a day beforehand to prepare all that was necessary. So they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath and violate God's law as a day of rest. But here they are then. This is then the Sabbath day. It is the Sabbath day that they're coming to Pilate. To ask him to secure the tomb. And this is significant for this reason. One is it simply highlights their hatred of Jesus. It highlights their hatred of Jesus. It highlights their insatiable intention to silence and to keep him from having any influence on the people. Normally, Pilate being a Gentile in that Gentile area, they would have had to enter. Now, Pilate may have also come out to them. They would not have thought of doing this on the Sabbath day. They would have waited until later. But they were so concerned that in their minds this deception and any influence of Jesus not be continued. That they go, even on the Sabbath day, risking their own ceremonial uncleanness to go to Pilate to try to get him to secure the tomb. This just again shows the absolute hatred and animosity that they had toward Jesus. They despised him with everything in their being. Just like John 3 says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear his deeds will be exposed as evil. And Jesus exposed their deeds as evil and so they hated him 
who was the light of the world. But secondly, it gives another indirect affirmation of his death. He was lying in the tomb. They never doubted that. They never questioned the fact that he was dead. They never questioned the fact that he's there in the tomb. They're only questioning the fact that he somehow might be stolen by his disciples. Uh, They say later in verse 64... Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. And they're saying the last deception will become worse than the first. They're only concerned that any chance of his words coming true might be stopped, might be silenced. And of course, being self-righteous, they have no interest in the truth. They have no interest to deal with the facts, only of promoting their own agenda. One last thing to notice here is this. Their request shows that they were perfectly aware of his statements. Look again at what he said. We remember that when he was still alive, he said this, After three days I am to rise again. Don't miss that fact. They understood clearly what Jesus had said. They understood clearly what his claims were. They understood clearly what he had prophesied would happen. To know and understand clearly the testimony of Jesus and yet to openly reject him, even to oppose him, brings upon an individual the greatest amount of accountability and judgment. This is very much like in chapter 11 where Jesus said, Woe to you, Corazon, Bethsaida, and other towns, because if the miracles would have happened in Sodom and Gomorrah that happened in you, they would have repented, but you didn't, and therefore your judgment is going to be greater. And so this is a huge amount of accountability. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they absolutely rejected Christ. Matter of fact, they had a better remembrance of Jesus' words than his own disciples, who seemed confused about it all the way to the end. So even though they had a better remembrance of his words, yet they did not have any faith and they had no understanding. One has said, hatred is keener sighted than love. And this happens today. Matter of fact, some of the best scholars who understand with absolute clarity the message of the scripture are liberal scholars. And in some cases, even atheists and others who seek to disprove it. They understand what the Bible says. Oftentimes, they understand the information of the Bible better than Christians do. They just absolutely reject it. They just absolutely reject it. They have no spiritual understanding. And therefore that knowledge acts only as a means of condemnation rather than a means of giving life. And so it is here. So anyway, Pilate acquiesces to their request. And he says, go and make it as secure as you know. And so they did. And so they went and they, they put a seal on the, the tomb He says, uh, verse 66, they went out and they made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So they set a seal on the grave so that it could not be rolled away without their knowing it. The seal was either likely a wax seal that would have been placed in between where the stone and the face of the boulder came together where it was. It could also have been a rope that was put alongside on either side of the stone held by clay wax on either side. But the point is, is that they had put a physical object there so that they could know beyond a certain, with absolute certainty, that nobody had come in and stolen the body. That was their goal, to make absolutely sure that nobody could steal the body. In addition to the seal, they put guards to watch the entrance of the tomb. 
Now, there's discussion whether these were Roman guards or whether these were Jewish temple guards. Really, it's not that important. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that they placed guards who were hostile to the truth with no interest in confirming anything that would credit Jesus, who were well-equipped to provide a secure and a trustworthy watch. They were placed at the tomb. That's the important point. They were there to watch it. And interestingly, the guard, which is meant to prove that he didn't rise... In fact, ended up becoming a witness to the reality of his resurrection. This such is the sovereign hand of God. Every detail God is designing and orchestrating, despite the wicked intentions of Pilate, some of the Romans, and the Jewish leaders, all of their actions, which are actually designed to discredit God, are actually affirming his work. And that's really the point. That's the point. Everything they're doing to deny the truth and to thwart the plan of God, God uses to affirm his work and ultimately strengthen the faith of his people. Now, why is all this important? Let me mention three reasons, and then we'll come into the Lord's table. One is this. Because Jesus died, because his death was real, because God has borne unshakable testimony to the reality of his death... It bears witness to this and gives confidence to God's people. It bears witness to the reality that Christ took on human flesh, or the Son of God took on human flesh and died a real death for his people. In other words, it is yet another affirmation that Christ was an acceptable sacrifice and substitute. He died in the place of men. And it is because of the reality of his death that we can be reconciled to God. Absolutely crucial. It wasn't a phantom that they saw. It wasn't some kind of vision that they saw. It was, in fact, a real man, Christ, the Son of Man, who died on that cross. Death is the consequence of sin, and he endured it. Listen to Paul. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved from his life. If Christ did not die, then that promise is empty. But he did die. He did die. And so we have absolutely confident, can be confident that he provided for us a full atonement for sin. There's another reason this is important. And it's because of the comfort that it gives to God's people. He tasted death for us. Hebrews 2.9. That means this, that he faced death for us. He faced death in some ways as a man like us, like all of us who will die if he doesn't return first to take us home. And he understands the comfort that we need in time of need. It provides comfort when you face death, when someone you know and love who is in Christ dies To know that Christ has already walked through that path. Christ has already experienced death for us. And not just experienced it, but because his death was an atoning death, he removed the sting and the fear of death by removing that sting, which is, Paul says, sin in 1 Corinthians 15. He bore it for us so that when you as a Christian lie on that hospital bed or hospice bed in your home or someone you love who is in Christ, you can know Christ has been there first. He's overcome it. He's destroyed it. 
He's there to walk through with his children and give them comfort as one who knows what it's like in that moment of need. And we know that as Christ died and rose, so we who die in Christ will rise again to be with him. Lastly, it gives us confidence in his work, it gives us comfort, and it gives us certainty concerning the resurrection and the real defeat of death. It's not like the swoon theory, right? Some who say that Christ didn't really die, he just became really weak, he only appeared dead, and he actually went in the grave and he was able to escape. It's not the swoon theory, that actually is what the Quran teaches as well. He didn't really die, that Jesus just seemed like he was dead, and then he escaped from the tomb in his own power. He had kind of an extra strength. That's what liberal theologian Schleiermacher taught. But that's not the case here. And everything in Matthew's gospel, and even as I begin with that one quote, God anticipated those kind of denials of the real death of Jesus, and he gave overwhelming affirmation that he died. And because he died, because he was really dead, because he was dead for three days in the grave, it makes his resurrection all the more glorious. All the more glorious. He was dead. He was truly dead, really dead, physically dead in every sense of the word. And yet, he lives. Now he is alive. He is alive in the same body that was put into the grave, and yet a body of glory. He is alive and appeared to his disciples and many others. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is and where he will bodily return. He says this, and this is the last thing we'll read before we go and take the Lord's Supper together. He said, The risen Christ to John, who fell at his feet when he saw him in his glory on the island of Patmos, Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead... And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is the sovereign one, and he is the one in whom we have placed our trust. So let's prepare our hearts now to go and worship the him who died and rose again on our behalf in the Lord's Supper. I'll pray, and then the men will pass out the elements, and then we'll take the supper together. Our God, you bear overwhelming testimony in so many ways that we've barely even mentioned this morning to the reality of the person of Christ, the eternal Son of God who has come and though you existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled yourself and took on the form of a servant, took on the form of man, And we're ultimately obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, having completed the work that was given you to do, having provided atonement and satisfaction for the righteousness of God through your life and through the cross, now are at the right hand of the Father for us, and we await your return. Help us to grasp the profundity of these events. Help us to find the confidence, the comfort, the certainty that you have designed in every testimony you've borne to the reality of your atoning death on our behalf. And as we'll look at next week, to your resurrection. 
Help us to be motivated and stirred up in our affections to live for your glory, to live lives of holiness and obedience, faithfulness to you, that we might present to you lives when we stand before you that can hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Help us now to worship you and to come with pure hearts as we remember your table. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.